Hi there. Welcome and thank you for listening in. I'm super stoked to have you with me. My name is Philip Hartmann and Being Dad is a show for dads. I meet and speak to unique dads, asking them to impart their wisdom and to share their experiences as dads with us. The reason for being dad is my own story. I became a father five times within 13 months. Yes, five times, 13 months. I was seriously underprepared and I struggled to find inspiring content for myself. By meeting and connecting with these men, I'm trying to learn all there is about being a dad. We cover heart-to-heart topics between two dads and our aim is to inspire other fathers. And with this, hopefully we can make a positive impact on families around the world. The best advice I could give myself as a dad is um, doing family dinner nights and structuring them so that everybody at the table has a chance to listen, uh, to talk without being interrupted and to um, listen fully before they um, do their own uh, speaking uh, so so that everybody at the table has a chance to know that their feelings will be heard and their fears will be heard and that they will not be lectured to, uh, although uh, the other people at the table will give their perspective uh, once they're completely heard. My next dad, Warren Thomas Farrell, is 77. He's an American educator, activist, and author of seven books on men's and women's issues. All of his books are related to men's and women's studies, including his March 2018 publication, The Boy Crisis. This was the book I read, which actually made me want to speak to him in the first place. In the 70s, Warren was heavily involved in the feminist movement. Although today he's generally considered the father of the men's movement, he advocates neither a men's nor a women's movement, but a gender liberation movement today. Warren currently works with the White House trying to increase father involvement after divorce by means of policy. In this session, Warren opens up about his own family setup and his experiences and challenges as a stepdad of two girls. His one daughter was adopted by his wife before they got together and the other daughter is a biological child from his wife and her previous partner. Warren also shares amazing insights and learnings from a few decades of research. We talk about adoption, a topic close to home for me, mom-style parenting and dad-style parenting and the effects. A big topic is father involvement, or the lack thereof, and its consequences. For instance, Warren says the single biggest predictor of suicide for boys is a lack of father involvement, and children with involved dads have a longer life expectancy per se. Another topic he elaborates on is how much can be gained simply by making sure dad and mum are both aware and honor the contribution dads make by means of their intuitive actions. He says that dads have a nest of neurons that is inactive before the child is born and that under the right conditions, father develop an instinct quite parallel but different to the one the mother has once there are children. The most powerful takeaways for me as a dad were structured family dinner nights help everybody in the family feeling heard and this fosters positive ties. Roughhousing leads to children being more empathetic and understanding the difference between assertiveness and aggression. So, keep on going, dads. The single biggest predictor of success is postponed gratification. And, mums can't hear what dads don't say. Lastly, please do get involved in our mission to facilitate family success. If you feel that podcasts help and inspire you to be a better parent, I'm asking you to please share two podcasts you love with two dads or mums that you love today. 
Without further ado, please enjoy another session of Dedicated.com, this time with Warren Farrell. I'm so happy that we're finally sitting together and that you're taking the time. Thank you so much. I read your book, The Boy Crisis, which I see is standing there in the background, and it really impacted me. For, it, it, it was a, yeah, I should say, very emotional uh, read. Um, I learned a lot and I knew I had to speak to you. I already spoke to John Gray, as I think you know, um, and that was interesting, very interesting too. And so I'm stoked to have you on the show and Please, can you give our listeners a quick intro about yourself? And then, really, we would love to hear um, from Warren the dad. Yeah, I guess uh, I started in the male-female area uh, back when I was doing my doctorate um, at New York University and the women's movement surfaced. And I persuaded my um, dissertation committee to let me do um, the, uh, my dissertation on the politics of the women's movement. And, um, and they said, ah, oh, the women's movement is just going to be a fad. And my response was, no, actually, I don't think it will be because um, we have evolved past a point where survival is no longer the dominant force and people now can begin to have freedom. Um, and the first people who will have that freedom will be women. And they said, what do you mean the first people that have that freedom will be women? Men, men already have that freedom. I said, actually, actually they don't. <laughs> they have the freedom to be... Uh, to earn money that somebody else spends while they die sooner. And that is a type of freedom, but it's not a choice of, say, being a full-time dad or, um, or being a full-time worker. Uh, they're expected to be a full-time worker of one sort or the other. And they said, well, interesting, but, you know, I think it's still a fad. And um, we disagreed, but I was also the assistant to the president of NYU. And so I had a little bit of weight <laughs> at the, at, um, uh, in these <laughs> issues. And so... Um, They let me do my dissertation on this issue, and that got me deeply into the women's movement. <clears throat> and then um, during, the, and so I was, I suppose, probably the, the world's leading male spokesperson for feminism for a number of years. And then um, things began to, um, the, the 70s, the amount of divorces there were in the 1970s um, led me to do some research on the impact of divorces. And I started to see that Uh, the children that didn't have a lot of father involvement after divorces were actually doing much, much worse than the children that had a lot of father involvement after divorces. So I brought this up with the National Organization for Women in New York City, which is where I was on the board of now at that time. And, um, and they said, well, you know, uh, we want women to have the option to be able to, they know what's, you know, they've been involved with the children, they know what's right. If the father You know, if the father should be involved, they'll keep the father involved. If the father shouldn't be involved and they want to go on and find a new man and move to a new area, they should be free to do that and leave the first mistake they made in their life um, behind. And I said, well, that's a, a very good if you put the emphasis on women's freedom. But And I'm 100% in favor of women having the free choice uh, to be able to, um, to have children or not have children. But once a woman makes a free choice to have children, she makes a, fr a free choice to put the children's needs above her needs. Um, and th that's, that's the free choice she's made. And they looked at me like, well, are you saying that we should, you know, um, that fathers should have as much rights to, you know, the children as mothers do? And I said, uh, it looks like the research is telling us that that would be the best for the children. And it was like I was, you know, the hero that was being looked at as, well, why don't you do more research was the response and see if that turns out to be true after a number of years of having larger numbers of children uh, or not. And I knew that, you know, the tone of the voice, et cetera, made it really clear to me. 
that if my research continued to find that children need both parents after divorce, uh, that I was no longer going to be the darling of the feminist movement. And that is what I did find. And um, But yeah, then the question was, do I keep my mouth shut or do I speak up? And I decided that I would speak up even though the price of speaking up was probably somewhere between 20 and $30 million from the best I can um, I can guess. I went from doing about 50 speaking engagements a year that were largely sponsored by the feminist community uh, down to zero speaking engagements at universities per year. Wow. So that, that was step one. And then let's see the next, um, you know, the next step is after many years, I, be, um, I met the woman who has now been uh, 25 years ago. I met the woman who became, was to become my wife and she had two children um, and they were six and seven and we got involved with each other. And so I, you know, I played a very significant role in helping to raise the children. And that role though um, was in many respects, um, I could never get beyond being an advisor. Um, that is, you know, at night we would speak um, very extensively about what was going on with the children during the day. And, you know, but ultimately she would make more protective oriented decisions that, you know, she would want the children to be taken to school, which was only two blocks away. Um, and, um, you know, and very easy to get to I, um, when they were six and seven, I would want the children to be able to walk by themselves. And, you know, I said, well, we could stand outside the door and we could see from the, uh, the door to the school. Um, but she was afraid that something would happen between the door and the school. And I would roughhouse with the kids and she would say, well, you know, we really need to, you know, take that roughhousing outside where the kids don't have a possibility of hitting their head on the, you know, on a piece of furniture or something else along those lines, doing it inside. And, um, and so, or the children would have difficulties with the teacher. And I would say that, you know, that, you know, the having difficulties with people in life are part of life. And let's talk with the kids about the difficulties they're having and not try to change the teacher and so there was the, there was always this tension between um, my wife's uh, my, the woman who be would become my wife's desire to protect the children, and my desire to sort of like let the children make judgments by themselves to a certain degree. And obviously, after a point, they need protection. Um, and but the but but I was more in the direction of having a different type of orientation of uh, of giving the children more free reign. And so, but at that time, I didn't know, you know, what, you know, what the research um, told us about that. And so about 14 years ago, I started the research for the boy crisis book and was really quite astonished to see that uh, things like roughhousing um, were uh, roughhousing um, when children roughhouse with their parents, um, which they do almost exclusively with their male parents, um, but they could do with their female parents. So none of this is none of this that I'll be saying are things that a mom can't do. It's just that these are things that dads are more prone to doing. Um, so dads are more prone to roughhousing. And I was astonished to see that roughhousing with children leads to the children being more empathetic. Like I never would have con connected empathy with roughhousing. Um, and I didn't, you know, so I started to investigate, well, why does that, why does that outcome come from something like roughhousing? And then I started to see that the, the roughhousing would also lead to children being able to make distinctions between <clears throat> being assertive versus aggressive. And it also, usually the fathers that roughhouse knew how to set boundaries and that that boundary enforcement um, forced the children 
to um, make a distinction between uh, to learn postponed gratification that is that they couldn't uh, stick their elbow in their uh, sister's face in order to win in the roughhousing and so therefore um, and if they did do that um, the father would say usually um, you can't do that and if you do do that anymore uh, there'll be no more roughhousing and so I started investigating what are the, the dynamics that are leading to the outcomes of empathy, the distinctions between assertiveness and aggressiveness, and postponed gratification, all coming from just something as simple as roughhousing. And roughhousing was only you know, one of about nine different, uh, nine male female differences, or what I call differences in dad style versus mom style, um, and that that led to children having very um, much more positive outcomes when they had. Uh, significant amounts of both the dad style and the male style uh, and the mom style, um, and so I started to look in both my me and my own life with the children, and and so so for example with roughhousing, uh, dads are much more likely, and I would be much more likely to say, you know, if um, if let's say there were three children rather than the two that we had, you know, to throw both three all three children on the couch and just say, okay, now the game here is, you know, I'm going to get um on my uh, hands and knees, and uh, I'm going to be a horsey, and you jump on me, and you see if you can pin me down before I pin you the three of you down together. Okay, yeah. dad, great. <laughs> and you know, I love it. The kids all jump on me. You know, and um, and they try to pin me down, but in the process, of course, and then and the mom is looking on, and she's going, uh, "Oh God, you know, this is like uh, I, yeah. feel, I feel like I, you know the dad is just one more child I have to monitor here. Uh, now I got four children, not three, <laughs> and so it's sort of like, um, and, and but she's saying, you know, to herself in the back of her mind, you know, well, I don't want to be controlling, and I don't want to, you know, the kids seem to be laughing and having fun." But I just know in my intuitive heart that um, that sooner or later somebody's going to get hurt, somebody's going to cry, and she's only about ninety nine percent likely to be right. <laughs> so sooner or later, yeah. you know, sooner or later, somebody does stick their you know elbow into their sister's eye, let's say, and um, and you know I or another dad will say you know okay you know you can we can, you could try as hard as you want to win, but you can't do that sticking of the elbow in your sister's eye. Uh, okay, Dad. Okay, Dad. Um, we got it. We got it. Um, and we go back to the roughhousing again. And then sooner or later, uh, we're experiencing what psychologists call emotional intelligence under fire. And the emotional intelligence under fire means that um, the, the that the children are now trying to be good like their dad said, but you know, the, the, uh, in the excitement, they can't remember the, 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 the excitement of winning um, overcomes the, the, dis the discipline of, um, of fe just feeling um, um, uh, um, of the, dis the discipline of, of having to stop doing what, what comes naturally. And so uh, this, this, as this is happening, the father um, um, goes okay. You now you 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 stuck your elbow in your sister's eye again. Uh, so that's the end of the roughhousing. Oh, it's dad, finished. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, dad, you know we won't do it again. That's fine. But then the dad, you know, or I would you know, would say, um, nope. I'm sorry. Uh, we'll do roughhousing tomorrow night again. Um, but you know, not tonight. And so mom is again looking on like, what? You just you know, the, you know, the children are crying. And you're now t say you know um, so somebody's gotten hurt. You haven't learned your lesson. You're now scheduling roughhousing for tomorrow night again. But dads don't know enough to explain that tomorrow night is when is when it really works. Because the next night when he when the dad says you can't do that sticking of the elbow in your sister's face, 
uh, the children yeah, know, know that if they do, they're going to lose what they really want, the roughhousing, because last night when they did, they lost. And so that's when they begin to learn to think of someone else besides themselves, their sister's needs, let's say, uh, or they begin to, and they begin to learn to make distinctions between being assertive versus aggressive. And the children that learn distinctions between being assertive versus aggressive and um, learn to think of other people, those children have more friends and therefore they have better social skills and therefore they're less likely to be depressed and less likely to withdraw into video games or porn or other uh, forms of distraction and withdrawal. And they have the single biggest predictor of success, which is postponed gratification. And so the, um, and because they've learned that they can't, that they can't have exactly what they want, any method of uh, pushing their sister or brother out of the way in order to win, they have to postpone the gratification of, 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 of um, pushing their sister or brother out of the way in order to get what they want to have, which is the roughhousing. And postpone gratification, as I said, is the single biggest predictor of success or failure. The children that don't have that are unable to complete their homework, or if they have a gift, say, in basketball, they don't have the discipline to do the drills without being distracted by a text or whatever. And in boy-girl time, they don't have the discipline to know how to do social skills with girls um, a bit that are much more slow, much slower than video game victories. And so they, uh, and so the lack of postponed gratification, both socially and academically, sports-wise, achievement-wise, again, is so important. But dads, I don't know a single dad, including myself at that point in time, when the girls were five and six, um, that I didn't know a single dad uh, that's, you know, that would make those connections so that moms uh, couldn't hear them and moms can't hear what dads don't say. And so it's, um, so what I came to learn in my relationship with the children and my wife is, um, you know, first of all, that the role of stepdad was very challenging, um, because, you know, if I, if I didn't, um, empathize with the girls and give them what they wanted in the back of mom's mind would be, well, you know, he's not the biological dad. Um, he really doesn't love them as much as I do. Um, therefore he's not going to be as protective, um, and so on. And so that's, uh, especially with girls. Uh, and the man being the, the father, uh, that is, uh, I found to be one of the most challenging um, integrations um, of parenting um, possible. Were, were you able to develop strategies for that, being the stepdad of, of girls and what you said, to counteract that? Phil, did, did you talk about it much or did you, didn't you realize at the time, were you able to, to develop strategies for that? Yes and no, um, meaning that I d we definitely developed strategies and we did have wonderful family dinner nights and um, had great talks and and Liz, my wife, was much more comfortable with, um, we have we had one daughter who was an adopted daughter, uh, Liz had adopted the daughter in a former marriage and right after she adopted the daughter, she found out she was pregnant, so somewhat similar <laughs> stories to what you <laughs> like mine <laughs> experienced, yes, exactly, and so... Um, And the adopted daughter was absolutely brilliant. And so uh, we were able to have, you know, these wonderful family dinner conversations. But the adopted daughter was also extremely, um, you know, radical in her perspectives and different. And so it was a wonderful scenario for being able to make sure that the, the adopted daughter, who's extremely articulate, uh, didn't dominate the conversations. But yet she didn't have her her perspectives condemned just because they were outside of the mainstream And so, um, and whereas the, the biological daughter of my wife 
I was much more conservative and traditional. My wife is fairly, it's fairly conservative and traditional in background and instincts. And so, and I'm more sort of, um, I was, I would put myself probably more in the liberal and, um, I would think, I, I think about things without too much of a boundary on them. Um, and so it was, uh, uh, those, those experiences where the children didn't have any, chance of being rejected and where I was protecting the children from, I was protecting the, the scene so that everybody felt heard and understood those, those were, those family dinner nights worked really, really well. Mm, I love that experience, Shay, because you are really, I didn't know this from the, from the research we hadn't spoken before, you are really one of the like super early, what you would call patchwork family today, right? Because the father, the biological father of your adoptive daughter was obviously not part of, of, of that patchwork family at the time, yet you took over the role of being the new father. Um, you, you know, your wife adopted before you were the picture, right? Yeah, yes, that, absolutely. Get it correct? Yes, uh, my wife. Yeah, that is super the, interesting. The daughter, when she was, right after she was born, the day after she was born, so she was already uh, six years old or seven years old when, um, when, I, when I met the children. Wow. Yeah. And did you guys have an open adoption? Does, do, does your daughter know uh, her, your, does your adoptive daughter knows, know you, her biological parents? Mine don't. Yes. Um, the, she, um, my wife, uh, or at that time, my wife-to-be, <coughs> I'm told the, um, the, bio, the adopted daughter that she was adopted uh, when she was a few years old. And it, it didn't have a great effect on her, but, you know, it, it wouldn't have had a great effect on her at any time. Um, she heard that the, you know, the, the, the challenge of a, for adopted children, which I now know a lot more about than I did then, um, is really extraordinary. I think the best way to understand it was um, we had a, somebody from New Zealand came over who was a rancher uh, after I did a um, book tour in New Zealand. And, the, um, and we had dinner together and the, the adopted daughter came with us. Um, her name's Erin, and uh, the rancher was. Um, I said to the to the rancher, you know, tell me about a day on the ranch that you you know give us give us a picture of that doing that mostly for my adopted daughter's benefit. And he said, um, you know, well, um, the I think one of the things that happened recently that was really touching was the well, we had about twelve um, ducklings that were born, and the mom and dad duckling were a duck were killed. And, um, and, um, and I was really worried about it, but to my amazement, uh, the ch uh, female chicken in the barn uh, took over the parenting of the 12 um, uh, children, no. uh, uh, ducklings. And so one day, uh, the ducklings sort of wobble, are old enough to wobble out of the barn and down this big hill that we have to, to the lake. And when the ducklings get to the lake, the ducklings all just jump into the lake and start swimming. And the, and the mom chicken goes, wow, why am I just absolutely going berserk at the fact that the, you know, the ducklings from her perspective are going to drown um, in yeah, the pool. Yeah, and, of course. and our adopted daughter interrupts us and says, that's what I feel like every day. I feel like wow. a duckling being raised by a chicken. <laughs> and it's sort of like, wow. And I, I true think story. That, that, you know, that is the power of adoption is no matter how wonderful, loving, and caring the adoptive parents are, uh, there's something that the child senses about itself 
that is different from those adoptive parents. And whether the child knows it's adopted or not, uh, there's a different type of trauma. Yeah. So we've been trying to tell our kids from the beginning, obviously, that it's obvious they are black and, and my wife and I am white. But uh, since they were like, I don't know, maybe a year, we've been starting to tell them similar stories. I don't know the duckling story, but, um, you know, the cuckoo who who puts her egg into a different bird's nest. And you tell it age appropriately and kind of tell them the uh, the concept of adoption. And now I speak to them about their birth mom and we make comments on how beautiful her eyes are and probably her birth mom is as beautiful and her birth father is probably so funny and cheeky like they are. And so we're just, we're trying to be very, very open. They're now four and a half and we're trying to be very, very open and just outspoken about adoption. It's just a normal thing. Um, or we try to do that because in society, I think there's still a stigma around adoption and people are often unsure or not, you know, how they can address the topic or is it something that you can talk about or not or shouldn't you? And so I, th I just really want them to be comfortable with the, with the fact of them being adopted. It's just how one way of families coming together, being formed. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Of many. There has to be so much empathy for the adopted child and there, there's such a need inside of us to sort of have a sense of who we are at the core. And even when we have bio, uh, you know, parents that are very loving, um, to not be connected to that, um, seems to be more traumatizing than, than would rationally be able to be understood. And, you know, there are some people that have, you know, written about this better than I have and uh, about saying that there's probably something that we will eventually find in sort of an epigenetic um, content, um, concept where um, the child is really um, in, in the womb is, you know, picking up the hormones and the vibrations and the energy of the biological mother. And when uh, the child is born and then given to a different biological mother or father, Uh, that that you know that that is a real uh, traumatic um, experience and um, feels there's a feeling of abandonment even if the child is unconscious of it, and so you know it's certainly been a very um, powerful experience, especially as the, our daughter has grown up and in many ways is a lot more like the biological mother than uh, than the um, biological um, than the adoptive than my wife um, and and yet. Often and yet, there's the the, the biological mom of hers um, has had other children that haven't done nearly as well as our daughter has, um, and she feels guilty. Our daughter feels guilty about the fact that you know that she got adopted to you know good parents, um, whereas the other children did not, uh, and why her? And so it's it's you know it's just the complexities are are just uh, enormous. Yeah. I was going to say amazing, a, a person, the stuff that we come up with as humans and then we make our lives difficult, but obviously that's real reality, right? These feelings are very real. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can, can you talk a bit about, um, in a practical sense, dad's involvement? I know in your book you say a lot, and we, talk, we talked about it earlier now, the more dads are involved the better it is uh, in your book for sons, but I mean, I take it for daughters, it's just the same. A lot of dads do work full-time and they're not at home 24 hours a day, obviously. Are there strategies on how you can, on what you deem uh, being involved uh, for dads who are strapped for time? Um, first what of, can they do practically? 
they're, they're, um, moms and dads need to sort of address the dynamic between them. And the, so if a father is sensing that the way that he will get his love and approval um, and respect from his wife is the way, is by going out and making good money and letting mom be the primary um, you know, caretaker or the full-time caretaker and make the decisions, most dads will do what they feel will make their wife happy. Um, there's a sort of unconscious feeling that has now been proven to be true um, that um, by John Gottman to, that, uh, you know, happy wife, happy life. And, you know, is sort of a, a phrase which is actually quite accurate in reality. Um, the, 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 and so the mother and father really have to sort of talk about, um, can I value you as a dad, as opposed to just as a breadwinner? And, um, and valuing dad as a dad means two things. Dads have to study up on what their contributions are. I was mentioning the, you know, the, the, the triple contribution of the, of the roughhousing, for example. And I, I don't, before I wrote the boy crisis book, I don't know of a single dad, um, that, um, that has ever said to, to the, the mom, um, you know, when I roughhouse, it helps the children develop empathy. It helps the children distinguish between being assertive and aggressive. It helps, helps the children have, um, postponed gratification. And moms, you know, sort of just think it's a, it's another child that they have to monitor, as I've mentioned before. And so, you know, the, the first responsibility is dad's understanding the nature, how that, what they do intuitively how much that develops the child's skill sets in many ways. So, for example, um, a child might come to uh, a dad and say, you know, um, you know, uh, I'm going to climb the tree in the backyard, okay? Um, and dad will go, um, um, okay, yeah, yes, you can do that, but be careful, sweetie, because you're, you know, you're pretty young. Um, and, uh, and then if mom finds out that he said yes, uh, mom is more likely to go, excuse me, what are you doing? That child could, could you know, fall <laughs> out of the tree, hurt himself or of herself, hit, his, hit their head, get a concussion <laughs> or even be killed. And you're just sort of saying, yes, be careful. Like, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, you got to, uh, yeah. and so the dad and mom then get into a, an argument, which if they don't understand that the tension between what's happening here between the dad and the mom is actually a healthy tension that will probably end up, if it's a good discussion, end up with a compromise that will benefit the child in both re both in terms of having safety and also in terms of having the experience. So, the 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 the, the a good dialogue might include, you know, well. You know, if you, if you want the child to climb the tree, um, the child's got to not go, you know, uh, you know, Aaron or Alex is not, uh, has got to not go above this level and not these branches. Look at how thin those branches are. And you got to be under the tree. And by the way, give me your cell phone. Um, and so the, and so the so, <laughs> good one. <laughs> and so the, so that you don't, you know, don't get distracted. And so, okay, the father and the mother ultimately come to a, um, a sort of a, an understanding and the father goes out, the child climbs the tree. So now the child is climbing the tree, um, in that limited way. But the child is getting to develop his or her IQ in ways that would not be developed before. That is, the 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 uh, the, the psychos uh, motor functioning of deciding what branch is, is too risky, what branch isn't, what could break, what can't. How do I go from one branch to the other? Um, how do I climb the tree? How do I use my strength in the right way? All of those things develop synapses that increase the child's intelligence and and flexibility. 
And, but, you know, again, dads don't go, I really want the child to climb the tree so we'll develop their psychosocial motor functioning and, and increase their IQ yeah. and increase their ability to yeah. adapt and make quick judgments. Um, and so it's, uh, and so these are the types of what yeah. I call checks and balance parenting where the dad is coming in with his, his perspective as to why the risk taking would be good. Mom is saying with well, protection is also important. And occasionally the moms and dads are exactly the opposite. The mom is more um, okay with the risk taking. The dad is more uh, protective, but this is just the general rule. And so those are the types of things. That, that, that would be in the realm of the daughters having uh, boyfriends, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, where the yes, mother says really. it's okay, where the father says, I'm really uncomfortable with this. Yes, so what you're saying is really, if I understand you correctly, um, one thing is obviously the conversation between moms and dads that needs, needs, to, needs to happen and can you value me in my role as X, Y, Z and how, what I'm doing. But secondly, it's also the awareness of the fathers, uh, which I found really powerful in your book, by the way. I really, really love that. It empowers men. You said... Um, Men can contribute so much to the child even before the child is born by eating properly, for instance, drinking less alcohol, exercising, you know, the sperm count goes up, the sperm gets stronger and, and all of that. And this really contributes to the development of the child. And I think often men aren't really aware of, of, of those things. I certainly wasn't until we really, really tried to get pregnant. And... Um, And just that awareness of being able, of, of knowing that you are actually able to contribute in many different ways. Like you said, you know, if, if I let the, the, the child climb the tree, this develops X, Y, Z. Men don't think about that, but being, being aware of that can help a lot with your self-worth, I guess, your feeling of self-worth as a father. And that obviously goes back to the marriage and or to the partnership where um, we are now more equal parents than before. Because I can feel better about myself as a dad, and and that helps the the whole family set up again. Absolutely, we have to understand. Oh, first of all, the the number of things I learned in doing the research for the book are just overwhelming. Like I had no idea yeah. that that the that you can that dads actually have a whole series, a nest of neurons that are inactive until a child is born. When the child is born, if the father immerses himself in the child's development and um and the intimacy with the child that those that nest of neurons all becomes activated and connects and the and the, the father develops a fatherhood instinct that is quite parallel to but different from the mother instinct whereas if the father responds to the child's birth by feeling okay now i have to go out and earn more money in order to be able to, um, you know, to compensate for the lack of money, money that the mom is now used to be earning versus is earning now. And then also for the additional, um, possible emergencies and expenses of a child. And so if the father interprets the child's birth as a mandate to be a success object, so to speak, um, then he's not going to develop this nest of neurons, what I call the dad brain. But if he immerses himself in that child's development and intimacy, he develops that dad brain. And that, and that dad brain is very crucial to that child having a lot of uh, increasing father involvement. And, that, and father involvement, another example of something I didn't know before I did the research for the boy crisis, was, was about telomere development. Telomeres are the part of your um, cells that um, contain all the genetic 
um, material that allows you to either say die sooner or uh, live longer uh, without getting cancer or be vulnerable to a heart disease and so on. So children by the age of nine who have a significant amount of father involvement already have telomeres that are 14% um, uh, longer. That is, and the telomeres that are longer are the single biggest predictor of a longer life expectancy. Uh, telomeres that are shorter, obviously the reverse. And both boys and girls have an average of 14% longer telomeres when they have father involvement, shorter when they don't. But in relation to each other, boys' telomeres are then again 40% shorter than girls when they, when they are dad deprived. So what I saw that is that that was both science, but also a perfect metaphor for the differences in dad deprivation with daughters and sons. Um, in, in the boy crisis, I wanted, yeah. in the boy crisis, I Sorry, was able yeah. to outline 50 ways, uh, more than 50 ways that children are significantly harmed from depression to suicide, et cetera, uh, when they don't have a significant amount of father involvement. But what, what, uh, what was it impacted me a lot was that even though lack of father involvement hurt both girls and boys, it hurt boys significantly more than it hurt girls because boys didn't That's have, my question. Boys did not have their same sex role model and boys were also not when the, when things were bothering boys we tend to stuff it in and it comes out in volcano form after being stuffed in for a long time and maybe we act out or you know drive quickly or you know um, you know try to drive around a curve quickly and challenge somebody else just to get out the adrenaline and the angst um, that that comes when we when we're feeling depressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. But this was my question: Is are, are women are girls less impacted? But you just answered it: girls are less impacted than boys from from this yes, situation they, where they, fathers they, they are, are impacted on fifty different levels, more than fifty different levels, as boys are. Just that the degree and you know, sort of, and the, and the telomere example was you know the one where. You know, the, on average, they're, they're in, the telomeres are impacted about 14%, which means the life expectancy will be about 14% shorter. However, boys' telomeres are yet again 40% um, more impacted, sh even shorter than the girls. And so, and that, that's, that, you know, that, that's sort of a scientific example of something that is really, uh, that is also true on a, um, a much more, um, um, a, a level of other measurements like, The you know boys and girls are equally likely to commit suicide when they're at the age of nine, and they don't do it very often. And between the ages of 10 and 14, boys are twice as likely to commit suicide as girls are. Between the ages of 15 and 19, boys are four times as likely to commit suicide as girls are. And be, between the age of 20 and 24, um, boys are uh, almost five times as likely to commit suicide as girls are. And so, uh, um, and the single biggest predictor of suicide is lack of father involvement. Uh, but we can see that that's especially true for boys. And is a, I know you talk about it in the book, but just for the listeners, is what's the situation around stepfathers or adoptive fathers when there's not the biological father around? Can he truly take the role of the father when you talk about father involvement? And if so, uh, what are the strategies that th these these men can apply? The, the, the stepfather 
it, 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 when I did the research uh, for the boy crisis, I was sort of expecting that, you know, all right, you know, I'm a stepdad. And so there, and I, I can, I'm really, a, I think a good involved dad and I'll be just as good as the, the biological father. Uh, but when the biological father, when I, when I finished the research, I found that, you know, I, I could not prove that, <laughs> that, that in fact, the opposite yeah. was true. The biological father really is more important. Uh, now, it just doesn't mean that I couldn't add a lot, but when I sent the manuscript of the book to the biological father of the girls, um, the, well, this is the first book I wrote on this issue called Father and Child Reunion. Um, the, the father, the biological father of, um, of one of the daughters that wasn't adopted was so impacted by it that he moved 500 miles back into the house uh, of where my um, future wife was uh, living and spend a couple of years with the, with the girls there, which were very positive developmental years for the girls uh, because he saw the, the, imp the impact that a father could have on the, on the raising of the children. Um, and the, but the, my role as a stepdad, I was mentioning before, um, I, I always fought to make it be a role that was better than advisor, but I didn't understand at that time, uh, 25 years ago, how, how important I was and could be. And so if the stepfather, the, the dynamic is between the stepfather and the mother is one where the mother is usually likely to set, to do as what I was saying before, which was, you know, sort of feeling that when the father uh, wants to take more risks and so on that the that the father the stepfather not being as naturally protective or wanting the child to have more boundaries or wanting the child to have more discipline uh, the mother biological mother often feels that that comes out of a lack of love for the for the um, uh, the children uh, that the stepfather has and so the father and mother really have to work on that issue. Uh, that there's a difference between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting, and it's so important whether the parents are step-parents um, or, or, um, or biological parents, that the, that the dad-style be integrated in, with equal amounts of power, not just advice power, that you take it when you want it and don't take it, but it's really important for the mom and dad to talk through um, all those different styles and to understand the dad style versus mom style and to understand what the dad style contributes and what the mom style contributes. Um, you know, in the, in the United States, we have a program called No Child Left Behind. Well, the program hasn't worked because in the process of having the No Child Left Behind, we've been leaving fathers behind more and more. And we're now seeing that, that children will be left behind if one of the parents is left behind. The best way of, of having no child left behind is to have no parent left behind. Yeah. Yeah. If there's no foundation uh, in whatever sense, I mean, I'm not saying people can never break up, but if there's no foundation and if you break up, it's not ideal, obviously, um, for the, the, it's a problem for the child, obviously, because the foundation is lacking. I'm working with the White House now very, very actively, and it's either in the State of the Union message or um, sometime later this year, um, President Trump's going to be bringing up a um, an executive order um, to um, get to make the boy crisis an issue, and not my book per se, but the you know, the challenges that boys are having in these more Concept. than 50, 50 areas that I mentioned. And uh, you know, one of the things that we'll be talking about is, you know, one of the things I'm discussing with the White House um, is that, um, 
you know, while it's very important that children have an equal amount of father and mothering after divorce. If you so in in the Boy Crisis book, I have this these four must dos of divorce. So if you are eliciting and you're a divorced parent, uh, one of the, the, the what I found that there's four things that absolutely must happen if you want your children to have the best way, uh, the best life possible, and almost as good an experience as being in an intact family. Number one is that there's an equal amount of time with mother and father that the children have after divorce. Number two is that the father and mother live within about 20 minutes drive time from each other so that the children don't resent um, going to the other parent's house because and having to give up a soccer game or having to give up a, um, a, a birthday party at their best friend's house. Um, number three, that the child is not able to detect any bad mouthing from father to mother or from mother to father. Um, uh, and number four is that the parents do consistent communication counseling or relationship counseling at least once a month um, in non-emergency situations um, so that they're able to understand each other's best intent with the children and communicate their different styles of parenting and, and, and come to some constructive balance between the two styles of parenting. And so that's really, um, you know, so if, if you are in a divorce situation and you care more about your the children than you do about your own rights and freedoms, uh, those are the things that you can do to, um, to increase the odds that your children are going to have a, a good, productive, happy life despite your being at, at divorce. However, all that said, what's even more important is that there is that that your children don't have to choose between living in a home where there is a a divorce, or b not a legal divorce but a psychological divorce, or where the children experience seeing you in a what I would call a minimum security prison marriage. And a lot of parents is a lot of parents are living in minimum security prison marriages, and so the um, and so the solution to that is. Um, I don't know, Phil, if you know that I, I do couples communication counseling all around the country at workshops. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason, one of the reasons I started those is because I started seeing that the Achilles heel of all human beings is our inability to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. And I was able, after a number of years, to develop a workaround to uh, allow people to meditate into an altered state before they heard criticism from their partner. So I, I have couples set aside just two hours a week uh, where there's a time period during those two hours, which in addition to appreciating each other uh, during part of that time period, they share their one most important concern. But before their partner listens to that concern, they alter, they, uh, they, they alter their biologically natural state of becoming defensive and they and I train them how to open into a non-defensive state that only will last about 30, 35 minutes. But during that period of time, they can really hear their partner's perspectives and concerns without internally developing a, a defensive dialogue um, that prevents them from really hearing their partner fully. So they're creating a... Can you, can you share how this is done? How you can alter that state? I mean, I know you do, a, it's a probably a long workshop, but can you give us the gist of it? Yes, I, I can't do it in less than 10 hours. I'll give you one clue. Um, so one of the things that I ask um, in the workshop is to um, is to have each person write on a piece of paper 
whether if their partner's life were in jeopardy, they would take, um, and they knew that they could save their partner's life, but they had a 50% risk, a chance of, of, um, of dying themselves, uh, would they do that? And about 98% of men say they would do that, even though um, about a third of the men in the workshop are there with a, a woman that they're thinking about divorcing or not, you know, or breaking up with. Um, conversely, about 85% of the women say they would do that for the men. And so I, the first meditation that I asked the men and women to do, and, and then if they wouldn't die for their partner, I asked, ask, would, well, would you be willing to lose an arm or a leg for your partner or do something a little bit less um, damaging than that? And since almost all the people in the workshop are willing to make some significant sacrifice for their partner, uh, the first meditation of the six meditations is to say, if you know, if I'm willing to die for my partner, may it, maybe it'll be even easier to just listen to my partner for 30 minutes. <laughs> Not die. <laughs> hey, Warren, just being mindful of time, I know you're on a schedule. We have five more minutes. Um, to wrap it up, Do, can you speak about? Um, sorry, I, I found that so interesting, and my mind is still going. What's like, would you lose your arm? Would you lose, lose a leg? Um, ca can you speak about? Is there a difference on how dads, uh, in your experience and from your research, should treat their daughters and their sons? Not should. Well, I mean, yes, should, but not not very much. Meaning that. Um, It's really, uh, example, I do a lot of expert witness work, and um, I'm over at um, one, one of the father's houses that I observed before I um, talk about him in court. And, you know, the father is, has, has his daughters, he only sees his daughter about once every two weeks, and he wants the daughter to feel really special. So he has the entire room set up with, you know, for, with her, her princess room. And, you know, I so talked to the dad about, you know, do you know that, Part of what you're having a problem with is that the, the woman you just divorced feels like she has the right to be the, the only parent with the children, and she's very much like a princess. You often complain about your wife, your ex-wife being a princess, but now you're training your daughter to be a princess. Does, does that make a lot of sense to you? And it sort of like gives him, on the one hand, he's treating yeah. his, his daughter as such preciousness, and we understand that, that many dads... Um, have a, you know, my, my assistant often talks about how, um, the father, uh, her husband, who's the fa a father, uh, will often be much more lenient to the daughter, uh, than to the sons. Um, and I, I confront dads on that issue and I say, you know, dads, if you really respect women, you don't, uh, you don't protect them. You don't protect people you respect. You protect people that you want to have remain a child and keep in child mo mode. And part of respecting women is expecting from them um, as much as you respect from from the boy. Now, there's you know there's little places where I could argue with that argument, but as a general rule, um, the the thing that I think that could lead dads and moms in the most positive direction for raising their our daughters as effectively as possible to have as many options as possible is to expect as much of them as we do of our sons. Yeah. With this, Warren, I think we should wrap it up. We've almost at an hour. I know you have to go. Thank you so, 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 so much for sharing this amazing wisdom and knowledge with us as a father and as a specialist in the field. And I wish you all the luck with your work. And I hope this, uh, 
it will bear the fruits that you are hoping for and hopefully we talk again soon well thank you i hope um the book will be published in south africa and i'll be able to meet you and spend some time with you and uh, meet your family as well i i would really like that please hit me up if you come to cape town i certainly will it's great to, really wonderful okay. talking with you you have such a warmth and empathy and um curiosity and intellectual openness it's a really wonderful combination phil thank you warren thank you that's really kind of you super thank you so much for listening in i really hope you liked the session if you did please share this podcast i'm sure you know someone who wants to hear this make no mistake your shares are meaningful and they drive our success so thank you for sharing thanks for listening in hope to catch you next time have an awesome day ciao